Welcome back to Pastoral Podcast. I'm Dr. Michelle Friedman of Yeshivat Chovavei Torah Rabbinical School, and joining me today and going forward is Dr. Rachel Yehuda, my co-author of the book, The Art of Jewish Pastoral Counseling, A Guide for All Faiths, and professor and vice chair at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and a specialist in post-traumatic stress disorder. Welcome, and how appropriate that you should be joining me as we talk about Parshat Noach, the story of the flood and the aftermath of the flood. If there ever was a story of trauma and efforts to recover, stabilize, and rebuild, the story of the flood and its aftermath is it. Definitely. Um it's only the second Parsha in the Bible, and in the first Parsha, we have God building the world, God creating the world, and as soon as it's created almost, God wants to destroy the world. And in fact, um, God chooses a handful of people to save, uh, Noah and his family, and instructs Noah on how to save himself and, and the creations that God does not want destroyed in the form of the animals. And there's a flood and mass destruction of the world. And then we see emergence. Right. And we, sometimes when you try to imagine it, and there's been movies that have done this, but none really go into the horror that must have been to emerge from this ark and to see everything that was known before devastated, dead, wrecked, never to be alive again, and these only survivors are it for the world going forward. Well, you can imagine how it looked to people when they came and liberated the concentration camps. A lot of people describe that similar feeling of total annihilation, destruction, corpses. What happened here? Total destruction. And really the question that is raised is, do you want to survive this? And how do you feel if you do survive this? And one of the things that happens is people can feel enormously guilty. Something called survivor guilt. And as much as we think that Noah and his family were um, thrilled to be saved, while everyone else was destroyed, the story of the immediate aftermath of the flood really gives us a little bit of a different picture, and that's in chapter 920. Right. 20. Right. And what Noah does, the first activity that we hear Noah doing, and this is after he sees the rainbow, this very beautiful, luminous chapter where God puts this rainbow as a covenant that God will never destroy the world again. And we're all feeling like we're imagining a rainbow and the beautiful colors. And the next thing that happens after Noah and his sons and their families leave the ark is that Noah plants a vineyard, and the text is very eclipsed. Noah plants the vineyard, he drinks the wine, and he becomes drunk and uncovers himself. 
it's an incredibly, I mean, you know, just think about how much time it would take to plant a vineyard for the grapes to grow to make the wine. The text doesn't care about that. The text cares about the urgency of Noah getting himself drunk. Uh, Unfortunately, um, Michelle, this is a pretty common response to um, trauma, um, combat trauma, total destruction and devastation. Um, it's a very human response. And the human response is, let me distance myself from my feelings and my reality in any way I can. One way is alcohol. I'm not suggesting that this is the appropriate way. but. All too often, the emotions of survival um, are so complex and so big that one needs to distance oneself from the way one is feeling by any means necessary. And here in the text, this was described as the go-to response to survival. Well, Rachel, you've seen an enormous number of people. You mentioned survivors before, Holocaust survivors, and now you're talking about veterans. What helps people? Obviously, we're not promoting substances don't help people, whether it's alcohol or drugs or such, but what does help people recover from trauma, devastating trauma? Well, that's a very um, complex question because Different people will really respond to different things, but one of the things that it takes is kind of trying to take stock of what happened, what it means, and how to go forward in a positive way. And I think that after such complete annihilation, what could Noah and his family been thinking that the world would be like? How do you rebuild a world? How do you go forward? And assuming that they were religious or, or that they were adherent to the word of God, what is it that God wants us to do now? How can we make meaning out of this total destruction? How can we create a different world? How can we go forward in a new way? And I think that kind of relates to the next story that you wanted to talk about, about right. what really does happen just a few short generations later in terms of how the world decides to rebuild. Right, so the story that Rachel is referring to is the Tower of Babel. And it's really quite short. Um, it's chapter 11, um, but it really is only nine verses. And it's so striking because here, Rachel referred before to needing, needing to have some kind of blueprint of meaning, some way of understanding what happens and what's the purpose of it all. And we don't get that at this point. We don't know what emerges from the ark. He gets drunk, and then there's a long genealogy, and we don't really have a, a, a blueprint of how to live. And the story that we do get is this seemingly misguided effort of these people getting together and collaborating to build a tower that's going to go into the heavens. And oftentimes the focus on this story is the challenge to God's dominion, that the people think that they can be so arrogant as to climb up to the heaven. But if you think about it on just the most childlike level, that if you had a lot of blocks or you had a lot of erector sets and you could build and build and build, it's going to topple over at some point. You're not going to get very far. It's a kind of 
you know, how many how many stories can a skyscraper go now? 100, 150? Um, where is it going to get you? And it seems like all of this effort, all this activity, all this collaboration, but really for what purpose? Well, I think that um, in the text they say, come, let us build us a city and a tower with its top to the sky to make a name for ourselves, else we'd be scattered all over the world. I think this was really some attempt to kind of unite. Now, maybe against God, maybe not. Uh, God felt that from the text. But um, really, it's a way of strength in numbers. But the question is whether they used this idea of coming together which is an incredibly positive post-traumatic idea, to do something constructive. What is the most constructive thing they should have done with their ability to create? Uh, is it a tower that goes all the way up? Is it to make a name for themselves? What might have been, and what is the inevitable outcome really, of this kind of an endeavor. You know, I think this has such resonance with contemporary times because we are in a time of um, needing to collaborate and needing to understand diverse opinions. And it seems that there's a lot of towers being built and a lot of silos where people are not collaborating in the purpose of enrichment or understanding, but actually to make themselves more important. Um, so maybe one takeaway from this story is that a more adaptive, healthier, long-term, better response to trauma is not to try to be a big shot or to try to be stronger than the next person or the next team or the next party or the next whatever, but to... Um, to pause and to try to understand uh, what people are saying and what people are feeling. Yeah, I mean, when I've read this text in the past, I haven't viewed it as a bad thing, that there are different languages and that people are scattered all over the world. I mean, this is a little story of how that occurred. Um, how did we go from a single to a world? And I think the idea here is that you can't have a singular perspective. You can't have a singular project and build something to the sky. That eventually people have their own language and their own thoughts and their own reactions and their own decisions and it's almost a way of kind of rounding out the story uh, by saying well when there's so much diversity it's harder to destroy that world because there's just so much else going on. There's so many languages. There's also so much more opportunity. And so that's really another way um, that we can look at it. And then, of course, it goes into the genealogy. It just becomes a fact. And the world is now populated. And the world is now diverse. And it, it doesn't seem, um, when I learned it as a child in school, it seemed that the people were doing something they shouldn't be doing and God didn't like it. But as I read it as an adult, I see that it's a very beautiful story right. about it's, diversity. Yeah, it's an anti-totalitarian story. And it's a story about, it's, it's a kind of striking um, contrast. We know we're headed into the, the birth of, of belief in God and belief in a godly way of life. 
and that way of life needs to incorporate the diversity of different kinds of people. It can't just be one way. Thank you, Rachel. I look forward to joining you next week for Lech Lecha. Thank you, Michelle. Noah, please like and subscribe.